Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Lauren Lim. And I'm Bryn Ehlers. We are pediatric residents at the Children's Hospital of Georgia at Augusta University. We will be your hosts and we'll be speaking with Dr. James Crownover, an assistant professor of primary care sports medicine at Augusta University. Today, we will be discussing the diagnosis and management of sports-related concussions in the pediatric population. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Crownover. Thanks for having me. I'm also excited to discuss pediatric concussions with you. So with the increase in concussions seen in the emergency department and outpatient setting, this is a great topic to discuss and provide a good refresher on what the symptoms are and how we can manage it. That's right. It can be confusing to navigate through the different guidelines regarding concussion, and there are different nuances based on age. Bryn, let's start off with a typical clinical scenario to get started. We have a 16-year-old boy who is presenting to clinic for the evaluation of a headache. He states that he was in a basketball game last night when he dove for the ball and slid out of bounds, hitting his head against the wall. He says that he was dizzy and had a headache after the injury, but after about five minutes on the bench, he returned to the game. However, the next day, um, the symptoms of dizziness and headache continued, but they didn't seem to worsen. He denies any disorientation, loss of consciousness, vomiting. He did not have any open head injuries or bleeding. He did not go to school, though, today because of the headache. His mother, who is with him, says that he's been very irritable this morning. The patient has heard about concussions, and he's wondering if this could be what is causing his headache. So I know that concussion can be a broad term, and there isn't a universally accepted definition yet. I think it would be important for us to kind of talk about how we can define it. Very true, Brent. While there may not currently be a universally accepted definition, there have been several international symposia discussing the matter. One group of experts called the Concussion in Sports Group, or the CISG, put out an updated consensus statement in 2017 describing concussions as, quote, a traumatic brain injury induced by biomechanical forces and includes five common features. Number one, direct blow with impulsive force transmitted to the head. Number two, rapid onset of short-lived impairment of neurological function that resolves spontaneously. Number three, acute signs and symptoms largely reflect a functional disturbance versus a structural injury. And what that means is that neuroimaging is negative. So normal CT, normal MRI. Number four, may or may not involve loss of consciousness and the resolution follows a sequential pattern. Number five, signs and symptoms can't be explained by drugs, alcohol, medications, other injuries, or other comorbidities, such as psychological abnormalities. So what are the most common features of a concussion? You can divide the symptoms into uh, different subcategories. You can see somatic symptoms, and these would include things like headache, nausea, vomiting. There's also cognitive symptoms. And these would include things like difficulty concentrating, slower reaction times. I would add memory deficits to that. Also, there's commonly emotional symptoms. Uh, that would include things like increased uh, irritability or emotional lability. There's also vestibular symptoms. And these include balance deficits or impairments, dizziness, lightheadedness. There's also commonly sleep-wake disturbances. That can include difficulty sleeping, a decreased amount of sleeping, and actually sometimes increased amount of sleep. Headaches are certainly the most commonly seen symptom, but not always present. Is there always some sort of loss of consciousness associated with concussions? Loss of consciousness is actually a rare symptom and reported to occur less than 5% of sport-related concussions. Interesting. So most of the patients I've seen with concussions are high school athletes. 
Yes, I would say the highest concussion rate is tackle football for high school sports. Uh, Second highest would be girls soccer. A close third would be boys lacrosse. Um, And this is based on several large epidemiological studies. Is there a difference between concussion rates from boys and girls? When comparing uh, between sexes, uh, sports like basketball that have both uh, a girls league and a boys league, uh, concussion risk does appear to be a little bit higher in females. Um, We're a little uncertain as to why that's the case. There's several theories about that. Uh, That could be that they're just more likely to report their symptoms than males. There's also speculation that it could have to do with weaker neck muscles um, or even uh, hormonal differences such as estrogen uh, might be playing a role. Because the symptoms of a concussion can be evolving and subtle, recognition can be challenging. Let's talk about what should be done initially once a potential head injury has occurred. The most important thing to do is to remove the player from the activity or game. Absolutely. The patient should be evaluated by a licensed healthcare provider in a timely manner using standard emergency guidelines with particular attention to the C-spine. If a patient is unconscious, has focal neurological deficits, midline cervical spine pain upon palpation, or palpable deformities, you should be extremely suspicious that there actually is a C-spine injury. In this case, the player should be immobilized on a backboard with uh, somebody trained in, in doing so and ultimately transferred to the emergency department. After the primary survey is complete and you have a low suspicion for a cervical spine injury, you may remove the player from the field and move on to the standardized concussion assessments. Dr. Crownover, I know there are many sideline assessment tools available that can be used once there is a suspected concussion. Is there a particular one that you recommend? The most common tool is called the Sport Concussion Assessment Tool, or the SCAT. The SCAT is updated at each CISG meeting and represents the most well-established tool available for sideline assessment. We are currently on SCAT number 5, and it is used to evaluate children 13 years or older. It takes at least 10 minutes to complete if done correctly. The main components include the Glasgow Coma Scale, Cervical Spine Assessment, Demographic Information, and a Symptom Assessment. This is then followed by the Standardized Assessment of Concussion, or the SAC, and then the Balance Error Scoring System, or we call that the BESS for short. And these are components that evaluate cognition for the SAC and balance for the BESS test. Uh, The memory testing does often include what's called Maddox questions. Um, Bryn, do you know what those questions are? Yes, so there's five questions, and the patient will get one point for every correct answer. What venue are we at today? Which half is it now? Who scored in the last match? What team did you play last? Did your team win the last game? Uh, Questions related to what's happening at the moment. So notably, Maddox score is only validated for a sideline diagnosis of concussion and it is not used for serial testing. It has a low-false negative rate, meaning the likelihood at which a patient who answers all the questions correctly later being diagnosed with a concussion is low. This makes it a great screening tool. However, its false positive rate is high, meaning the likelihood that a patient who cannot answer one or more questions and doesn't have a concussion is high. So it's important to use this score in conjunction with the rest of the tools in the SCAT-5. Remember that the SCAT-5 is used to assess athletes ages 13 and older for a variety of mental and physical changes following a head injury. There is a separate scoring system for children ages 5 to 12 years old called the Child SCAT-5. The Child SCAT-5 does not include the Maddox questions that evaluates memory, since these questions are not validated for those less than 13 years old, but it does include an additional parental assessment. 
These sideline assessment tools can help providers to evaluate for concussions and provide more information, but they're not intended to be used in isolation for diagnosis. It is important to remember that concussions can be a rapidly evolving process. Symptoms may not be immediately evident, so repeat assessment is essential. Correct. Even after that assessment, make sure that you're not leaving that patient alone. They should be checked every, I'd say, 15 to 20 minutes to make sure that their condition is not changing. Any witness concussion should absolutely not be returned to the field of play. Ultimately, we have to make sure that they do not get a repeat injury. What are some red flags that warrant urgent referral to the emergency department? Great question. If the patient is having neck pain or tenderness, weakness, tingling in the extremities, if they had a witnessed seizure, um, if they appear to be increasingly restless or agitated, or they're just deteriorating um, in terms of their level of consciousness, uh, worsening headaches, worsening really any symptoms, uh, repeat uh, vomiting, then there may be something much more serious than just a concussion occurring. And in that case, they really need to be seen in the emergency department. So I know that during the assessment of concussions, routine neuroimaging is not indicated. What sort of instances would make you want imaging? That's a great question. A CT scan is recommended in patients where there is concern for an intracranial hemorrhage or bleed. Reliable indications for this would be patients who have a GCS or Glasgow Coma Scale less than 15, altered mental status, or signs of a skull fracture, such as bruising at the mastoid process behind the ear, or bruising around the eyes, which is called the raccoon sign, or blood seen behind the tympanic membrane of the ear. Studies have shown that without deterioration in the level of consciousness of a patient within the first six hours after a head injury, it is unlikely that an intracranial hemorrhage will be seen on imaging. The PCARN study evaluating pediatric head trauma also found that patients in the emergency room with a GCS of 15, but who also had a history of loss of consciousness, vomiting, severe or worsening headache, or severe mechanism of injury, such as a fall from a height greater than three feet, a vehicle or bike crash, being struck in the head by a high-impact object, carried an increased risk of having a structural brain injury. There's also some free online calculators that can help predict the risk of certain intracranial injury that are easily available on MedCal and many others that use this PCARN data. There are essentially two points of entry into the healthcare system for children with concussions. One, the emergency department, or two, their pediatrician. There's also a large group of children with concussions that are actually never seen by a physician. You are correct, Lauren. Pediatric and adolescent concussions account for the majority of sports-related concussions, but many children do not report the injury or the symptoms. In fact, one study estimates that about half of pediatric concussions are never seen in a healthcare setting. Males, in particular, are more likely to not report the symptoms due to fear of approaching their coaches, desire to not be removed from their sport. Multiple surveys have shown that about two-thirds of high school athletes state that they would play through a concussion and not report their symptoms. Luckily, self-reporting of symptoms is improving due to increased awareness of concussions by the coaches, parents, medical staff, as well as more media exposure. Let's discuss what happens when a child enters the healthcare setting for management of a suspected concussion. Dr. Cranover, when you are assessing a patient in your office after a concussion, what does that visit look like? When you are seeing a patient in the office after concussion or suspicious of a concussion, it's important to get a really good history of the injury as well as relevant past medical history. Regarding the history of the injury, uh, I always evaluate um, what their symptoms were for that first couple of hours. Were they seen in the emergency department? Was any imaging done? 
Um, and then I want to get a timeline of those symptoms between when the injury occurred and when I'm seeing them in clinic. What type of medical history is relevant for a child with a suspected concussion? Uh, it's really important to look for other medical conditions that may make them susceptible to a prolonged recovery. So that would include things like ADHD, um, depression or anxiety. If they have a history of migraine headaches, they may be more prone to getting headaches after a concussion. Uh, learning disabilities um, are, can be problematic for more cognitive symptoms after a concussion. I even like to know if they get car sick frequently, and that might make them more susceptible to vestibular type symptoms. It's also extremely helpful just to get a nice checklist of all the different possible post-concussion symptoms and a good quality review system. Yes, that would be very helpful. So let's talk about the physical exam. When doing a physical exam, I usually concentrate on the head and neck exam as well as the neurologic exam and ocular evaluation. It is also important to test balance such as tandem gait or a Romberg test. Okay, let's move on and talk about the recovery period once the diagnosis of concussion is confirmed and other life-threatening issues have been ruled out. I know the average recovery time for a concussion in pediatric patients is about one to four weeks, but there really is no way to predict how long it will take to recover. We should emphasize again how important it is to remove the athlete from play after a suspected concussion. These individuals should never be allowed to return to play on the same day of the injury. This is because it has been found that athletes that continued to play immediately after having a concussion had worse symptoms than those who were removed from the game. They also had worse neurocognitive scores and a longer recovery time lasting more than 21 days. Hey Brent, what are some of the other major risk factors for a prolonged recovery period after a concussion? Besides returning to play on the day of the injury, other risk factors include a previous history of concussions, particularly that same year, more severe symptoms or a higher SCAT score, female gender, or previously diagnosed ADHD. Assuming a child doesn't have any of these risk factors, Dr. Crownover, what are your goals for managing concussion recovery after the initial diagnosis and removal from play? A hugely important part of concussion management is really just to educate the patient and their families about concussions and what to expect during the recovery process. It's good to explain realistic expectations up front so they kind of understand what that recovery process entails. We always uh, provide reassurance that they will improve, even if sometimes it's a little slower than what that athlete hopes for. It's also important to reiterate the importance of not getting a second trauma, which is why we are holding them from their sport or any other high-risk activity. Of course, in the end, the goal is to successfully return to academic and physical activity and athletics at a full capacity. How quickly should a child with concussion return to normal activity? Previously, it was thought that patients should have strict rest after a concussion, meaning no physical activity, no homework, reading, no television, or phones. This is often called cocoon therapy. However, it has been found that patients who are recommended strict rest, regardless of symptoms, actually take a longer recovery time and report worse symptoms than those who had shorter or looser restrictions on their recovery period. So this includes homework? Technically, yes. Don't get me wrong, we need to recommend a decrease in both cognitive and physical activity after a concussion for the best improvement. However, studies have found that even mild reductions in cognitive activity, such as schoolwork, had similar recovery times to more extreme activity restriction. That being said, it is best to get the child back in school as long periods of absence are unnecessary and often harmful. As a physician, we should be communicating with the school to recommend a decrease in academic load. The child also may need an adjustment in the environment. 
such as a quiet place to complete work or take tests uh, during the recovery process, it is important to monitor symptoms. All activity should be subsymptomatic, meaning that if the child starts to feel symptoms such as headaches or nausea or dizziness while participating in any sort of activity, then they need to stop. When they are symptom-free, they can resume that activity, but at a, at a level that is below the symptom threshold. So I read that the American Academy of Pediatrics is actually now discouraging the recommendation against using electronics following a concussion. Yes. So since adolescents are socially connected through electronics such as phones, computers, video games, complete elimination of electronics may result in the teenager being socially isolated from their friends, which can cause increasing feelings of depression and anxiety. Currently, there is no research that has found a negative impact of electronics on concussion recovery. Sometimes screens can cause irritation, cause dizziness, and light sensitivity. If this is the case, screen time could be reduced to improve symptoms, kind of similar to taking a rest from schoolwork that worsens headaches. Recommending larger font or decreasing the screen brightness may also help. Dr. Crownover, what is the role, if any, regarding medication for concussion treatment? Currently, there is no medication available to specifically treat concussion. I always tell patients that I don't have a pill that I can prescribe that's going to see recovery up. Initially, the most commonly used or recommended medications are primarily for symptomatic management. And these can include things like acetaminophen or Tylenol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen or Motrin or Aleve, and nausea medications like Zofran. However, these medications are not recommended for chronic use, as Tylenol and Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications can result in rebound headaches if they're used for too long. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so when can the child return to play? What guidelines can we provide to families? Similar to returning to cognitive activity, returning to physical activity should happen at an individualized pace using symptoms as a marker for speed of recovery. It is recommended that patients follow a graduated, stepwise program. This program was first proposed by the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine in 2000 and has gone through several updates since then. However, these guidelines have been modified from adult guidelines as research has not yet been conducted on pediatric-specific return-to-play programs. After initial removal from play, patients should avoid complete inactivity, which could lead to prolonged recovery time as we discussed before. If daily activities do not worsen symptoms, it is recommended to participate in light cardiovascular activity, such as a brisk walk, and continuing to monitor the symptoms during this activity. This is considered stage two in the graduated return to play program. Children and teens should not move past stage two in sports participation if they are not yet fully participating in school. Subsequent stages include sports-specific exercise, such as running, non-contact training drills, full-contact practice that is sports-specific, and finally, normal competitive gameplay. Each step should take at least 24 hours, and the patient can advance if the new stage did not provoke symptoms. If symptoms did recur, the patient should rest, wait another 24 hours, and then resume activity at the previous symptom-free level. Are there any preseason interventions we can do for prevention? So I've heard a little bit about impact testing. Could you tell us more about it? Absolutely. Uh, impact testing is a type of neurocognitive test done on the computer. Basically tries to evaluate different components of memory, reaction time, and ultimately processing speed. So how quickly that athlete can get through information accurately. 
it's one of the most common neurocognitive tests that's used really throughout the world at this point. The SCAT-5 is another form of that, and a lot of clinics will actually use both. Here at Augusta University, we do use impact testing. It's also highly beneficial to have baseline testing with the impact. So there are a lot of, say, high school athletes, for example, that will sit down and take this test before the season starts to get their own unique individualized baseline score so that if they do end up getting a potential concussion, we can test them and then compare those scores with the baseline. Um, it is a useful test. Um, I would say it is still just one small variable that we take into account when seeing athletes in clinic to help inform return to play and return to academics. As we have discussed, it is important to educate our patients, parents, and coaches regarding signs and symptoms of a concussion. There actually has been successful efforts in regards to legislation that have shown to make a difference in decreasing the risk of concussion-related injuries for children. In the last 10 years, every state has passed some sort of legislation designed to reduce concussions in youth athletes. Most laws require parents, coaches, and players to receive education about concussion symptoms, state that the child must be removed from the play if a concussion is suspected, and cannot return to play until there is written medical clearance from a healthcare provider. Research has found that since these laws have been passed, there is improved concussion reporting and a decrease in return to play after concussion. That's a good point, Lauren. While mouth guards, headgear, and helmets have reduced dental trauma and intracranial injury, they have not been found to significantly impact concussion prevention. However, rule changes such as eliminating body checking in youth hockey has been found to decrease concussion. Recently, Pop Warner Youth Football banned the three-point stance in its youngest divisions, which means that players start the play with no hands on the ground. This should reduce repetitive head trauma by not initiating contact with their heads at the start of every play. It will be interesting to see if these rule changes affect youth concussion rates in football. Yes, that will be interesting. Wow, we covered a lot of information today. Let's summarize the key points from today's episode regarding the diagnosis and management of sports-related concussions in children. Concussions, like many things in medicine, exist on a spectrum of severity and symptoms, ranging from mild headache to loss of consciousness and altered mental status. There are several tools to help with the assessment of concussion, such as the Sports Concussion Assessment Tool, or SCAT. These tools can help clinicians appropriately evaluate a suspected concussion. Remember, immediately following a suspected sports-related concussion, the child should be removed from gameplay or practice and not be allowed to return for at least the day. Typically, neuroimaging is not indicated for concussion. However, emergency evaluation is warranted if any of the red flags are present, which includes neck pain, weakness or tingling in the extremities, seizure, deteriorating level or loss of consciousness, progressively worsening headaches, or repeated vomiting. After a concussion, initial reduction of cognition and physical activity is beneficial for recovery, but prolonged or severe restrictions can actually lead to longer recovery time and worse symptoms. Currently, there are no medications available that prevent or treat concussions. Athletes should follow a symptom-based gradual return to play with at least 24 hours between stage progression. Children should be fully participating in academics before progressing to full gameplay. And finally, most pediatric concussion symptoms resolve with an average of four weeks after the injury. Thank you, Dr. Crownover, for joining us to talk about pediatric concussions today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into this podcast episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and Augusta University. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or feedback. 
you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Also visit our website at augusta.edu backslash mcg backslash pediatrics backslash residency. These links are available in the show notes below. Remember, this podcast is strictly intended for informational and educational purposes only. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Bye. Bye. Thank you. (laughs)